Batman and the Earth 2 Robin. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Chris Franklin. Taking you through a classic superhero team up, Batman and Robin the X. Boy Wonder, from The Brave and the Bold, number 182, cover dated January of 1982. And Chris, now that you've let the reins go on Nightcast, how do you feel about getting a regular dose of Batman again on this particular show? (laughs) Well, I can never get enough Batman, you know. It's like, it's not like Cindy and I don't cover a lot of Batman on JLU cast, but to have Batman-specific stories, I'm very excited. I'm very excited to be here. We're going to talk about Brave and the Bold in this particular segment, which comes up every four months as part of our coverage of Bronze Age team-up stories. And for Brave and the Bold, where have we decided to start? Let, let's explain the order to the folks. <laughs> well, well, I guess where we start, it's kind of my fault because this is my favorite single comic of all time. No pressure. Uh, so <laughs> it seemed like a good place to start. And I actually, Cindy and I and Rob actually covered it years ago on one of the earliest episodes of Supermates, but I, I think I could barely speak into a microphone back then, so hopefully we'll, uh, you know, I, at least on my end, I'll do it more justice this time. And you'll have the benefit of my tight editing. That's right. Uh, <laughs> but th- this is a, obviously an issue that's been covered on the network before, not just in the prehistoric days, <laughs> but it's an Alan Brenner story, so of course Rob has, has talked to... Uh, Mr. Brennan about it, yes, you know, on Fire and Water. So this is a familiar story, but for me, it was like a first read. So we're going to get at least one fresh take out of this and an updated take on your part. As far as the order goes, this is a very late issue, but we were thinking if we started with Apero, people would be asking about Neil Adams. If we started with this late era, people would ask about Bob Haney. You know, it's such a long run that what we're doing instead is jumping around from episode to episode. If Bob Haney didn't care about continuity in the series, why should we? (laughs) If Bob Haney had been writing this story, it would have been totally different. I mean, I don't think this story could exist if Bob Haney was still writing, because I don't think he knew what Earth 2 was. So (laughs) It would all have happened on the same Earth Earth somehow. Interlude on Earth B, yeah. Exactly. And we'll tell you how that works, this jumping around. You'll always know ahead of time what's the what the next issue is going to be, and we'll tell you how that works towards the end of the show. So for now, we preface, as usual, with a reason or reasons why we like the guest character. So, Chris, what's so great about the Robin of Earth 2? Well, as a kid, I actually did what DC wanted me to do, and I actually related to Robin. I know some some readers are like, I don't like Robin, I want to be Batman, but no, I liked Robin. So when I first met the Earth 2 Robin in All-Star Comics number 74, which was the final issue, way to go, Chris, a Dick Grayson who had grown up, put on pants, and had become an adult <laughs> Robin was very appealing to me. And I, I love his costume. Some folks... Love the earlier Batman hybrid he wore before this. There's a whole Facebook group I belong to where they love all aspects of Earth 2 Robin, but they particularly love that version. But others don't like the yellow leggings here. Our friend Andy Leyland doesn't like the yellow leggings, I know. But I think it's a fantastic update to the Robin costume. And for my money, no one drew it better 
than Jim Aparo in this very issue. So I don't care if the mask doesn't make physical sense. I love it. Just look at it. He looks awesome. So. <laughs> I mean, the mask. The mask is kind of a stick on. It looks like like you could do that on television today or movies because that's kind of how they do it. The stick on yeah. mask. For me, I, I don't have such a long history with the Robin of Earth two per se. Uh, he's another shade of Dick Grayson, which at the time was perhaps more interesting because we didn't know what Robin would grow up to be. Right. Right. And now that we do know, it's like a what if story where it's a, it's a little different. What if he kept the Robin identity? What if he had to deal with Batman's death? Is what we're you can compare and contrast this to the Battle for the Cow. Yeah, where this sort of happened in our continuity. So to me, it's more about exploring alternatives than anything. Uh, but also, I was a fan of the younger, late. Uh, Golden Age stories where Robin was acting solo in Star Spangled Comics. Yes. I believe there's an archive of that. So I, I've read a, a number of these stories where he's on his own and and it kind of feels like, you know, like would be Nightwing stories or that they happen to this particular guy. So, uh, so let's talk about that era of Robin, Earth 2 Robin's publication history. Since you chose the issue... I'm going to let you go ahead and and deliver a chapter from your book. (laughs) (laughs) A very long chapter, sorry. Uh, Well, since this is actually the Golden Age Robin grown up, as you pointed out, Dick Grayson's history begins with Detective Comics number 38, uh, cover dated April 1940, created by Bob Kane, Bill Finger, and Jerry Robinson. At least that's everyone who claimed credit on him. I don't know if there's some heretofore unknown assistant who also claims credit on Robin, but... That's who, you know, more than likely contributed to the creation of Robin. Uh, Dick was, of course, a member of the Circus Trapeze group, the Flying Graysons, who witnessed his parents murdered in the middle of their act. The Graysons were the victims of extortion since the Haley Circus was caught up in a protection racket. Batman takes the young boy in and trains him to be his crime-fighting partner, Robin the Boy Wonder. Of course, that's the origin of every version of Dick Grayson as Robin, uh, pretty much. Robin was the first of the Costume Kid sidekicks and created a subgenre of heroes that included Bucky, Toro, Speedy, Dan the Dynamite, and more endangered youngsters than you can shake a court order at. Uh, Robin continued to appear with Batman a Detective and into Batman's own solo title just one month after his own debut. They also got a regular berth in World's Finest Comics beginning in early 1941. From this point on, Batman was rarely, if ever, seen without Robin. The two dominated the cover spot on Detective Comics and appeared with Superman every month in fun vignettes that were not reflected in the stories inside in World's Finest since Superman and Batman had separate features in that title at this point. In December of 1946, Robin literally stepped out of his mentor's shadow on the cover of Star Spangled Comics number 65, February 1947, starring in his own solo strip beginning in that issue. He was the cover feature through issue number 95 until he was tomahawked Replaced first by the Frontier Hero and later Doctor 13, Ghostbreaker. We're going to make that a word, uh, the, the Fire and Water Network, Tomahawk. Uh, but his feature lasted as long as the title did, ending with issue number 130, July 1952. Batman made appearances on occasion, was even cover featured on issues 88 through 94. During the 1940s, Robin also broke into other media with his mentor, played by Douglas Croft in the 1943 Batman movie serial, and by Johnny Duncan in the follow-up Batman and Robin in 1949. The dynamic duo was also frequently featured on Superman's radio show, especially when Bud Collier needed a vacation. They shifted the story over to Batman and Robin. (laughs) The demarcation between what we would come to know as Earth-1 and Earth-2 is murky for characters like Batman and Robin, who never ceased publication. 
Many historians agree that the Earth-1 dynamic duo first appeared in Superman number 76, May-June 1952, where Batman first teams up with the Man of Steel inside a comic, despite some previous group interactions in JSA stories within All-Stars comics. When the three heroes began working together regularly with World's Finest number 71, January-August 1954, the stories began to dip more heavily into the Earth-1 category, and by the end of the 1950s, it's safe to say nearly every story is taking place in the Earth-1 continuity. While his Earth-1 counterpart slightly aged up enough to form the Teen Titans, the Earth-2 Robin was allowed to age like the other Golden Age DC heroes. He debuted in his adult form, complete with one of the most divisive costumes in comic history, in Justice League of America number 55, August 1967. Robin is welcomed into the ranks of the Justice Society of America, replacing his semi-retired mentor. He appears in the following issue to wrap up that summer's annual JLA-JSA crossover. He reappears in another of those summer events in 1971 in JLA number 91 through 92. There, despite being a JSAer for many years, the older heroes treat him like a kid sidekick once more. He finds solace and camaraderie with his Earth-1 counterpart when the JSA and JLA team to fight Solomon Grundy and a wayward alien child. The younger Dick Grayson of Earth-1's costume is shredded in battle, and the elder Robin gives him a snazzy new, more mature costume designed by a friend of his... Neil Adams. Not taking his own fashion advice, Earth-2 Robin continues to wear Batman's hand-me-downs when the JSA teams with their younger counterparts in JLA number 101 through 102, 1972, and 123 through 124 in 1975. Dick is revealed to be the U.S. ambassador to South Africa in All-Star Comics number 58, January-February 1976, the issue that relaunched the JSA's title. There we are introduced to their second-generation sub-team, the Super Squad, of which Robin was a part of, despite being much older than the newly-minted Power Girl and the time-tossed Star-Spangled Kid. But at least Dick finally adopts his adult red-yellow and green Robin costume in that issue. He carries the look over to that year's annual JLA-JSA crossover and returns to All-Star more frequently later in its run, where we learn Bruce Wayne is now Commissioner of the Gotham City Police. Having recently lost his wife Selena Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, Bruce is manipulated by the Psycho Pirate to move against his former teammates, and Dick follows his mentor's lead. During this storyline, Bruce and Selena's daughter Helena debuts as the Huntress, but Dick is not fooled by her disguise. The family reunion doesn't last long since the Earth-2 Batman dies in Adventure Comics number 461, January-February 1979. Robin and Huntress help the JSA bring the villain behind his death to justice and continue to serve on the team. After the cancellation of the JSA's strip in Adventure, Robin's appearances in the present become more infrequent, although his younger self does occasionally appear in the past in the pages of All-Star Squadron. In modern times, he appears in Huntress's backup strip in Wonder Woman number 283 through 285 in 1981, where a somewhat questionable budding relationship between the two is hinted at. He helps the Superman of Two Worlds and the Earth-1 Batman defeat Atom Man in World's Finest number 271, September 1981, before appearing in this comic. His printed adventures are mostly new tales set in his younger days for the next several years, including All-Star Squadron, Superman Family, and flashback appearances in Brave and the Bold, including number 197, also written by Alan Brennert, and the final issue. He finally gets back into action in a new series set on Earth 2 with Infinity Incorporated number 1, March 1984, alongside the JSA, who is manipulated by the stream of ruthlessness and goes rogue. Their children and protégés in Infinity Incorporated must stop them during the title's initial Generation Saga storyline, which includes a nasty fight between Robin and the Huntress. Dick finds himself at odds with the JSA and legally battling Helena as she defends the team in the miniseries America vs. the Justice Society, 
from 1985. Dick must prosecute his teammates based on accusations from the diary of Batman himself, exposing the Golden Age heroes as traitors to their country. Of course, it's all timey-wimey per Degaton plot in the end. Luckily, Dick, Helena, and the rest of the JSA were able to patch things up because the Bat Kids didn't have much time left. Crisis on Infinite Earths called, and with issue number 11, we see that Dick and Helena have awoken in a world where the only version of him known to exist is a 19-year-old teen titan, and she doesn't exist at all. In issue number 12, March 1986, their non-existence is made permanent when Robin bravely tries to save a fallen Huntress before both are crushed by a falling brick wall, along with the teen titan Cole. And young Chris Franklin was extremely put out by all that. Big fan of coal. <laughs> yeah. Dang it, not coal. <laughs> uh, well, that was a very complete history of the Earth to Robin. You're publishing soon, I imagine. <laughs> Back issue magazine. I've already got it written. This, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. This story takes place towards the end of his existence, really, uh, within the last you know five years of it. So... Let's get into the synopsis. Let's look at this issue, uh, Interlude on Earth 2, as written by Alan Brennert, with art by Jim Aparo. A fierce, unrelenting electrical storm hits Gotham City, but it's not our Gotham City. Rather, we are on Earth 2, and Ted Knight, Starman, is informing U.S. Ambassador Dick Grayson, Robin, that it is unnatural. Robin remembers that Professor Hugo Strange, presumed dead, once used a machine to create just such an effect. And Strange, projecting his face into the sky, uses the lightning to defeat both heroes and steal the Cosmic Rod. From the case files of the Batman, on the night of an incredibly fierce storm, I was drawn to a cemetery I was unfamiliar with. A bolt of lightning landed right in front of me, and when I came to, I was staring at my own grave, the grave of Bruce Wayne. I quickly realized I was no longer on my Earth, but on Earth 2, where my doppelganger and his wife, Selena Kyle Wayne, the Catwoman, had died many months ago. I helped some citizens who were being plagued by the storm, but they were clearly frightened by seeing their dead guardian in the flesh. I made my way to Justice Society headquarters hoping Dr. Fate could send me home. While attempting to pick the locks, I was attacked by a familiar figure. But this was not my old chum. This was the Robin of Earth 2. And Robin, still grieving for his Bruce, remains cold and aloof to this other Batman as he recounts his Earth's Hugo Strange's career up to the moment he was punched off a cliff and never resurfaced. Until today. Suddenly, Catwoman's old panther jet is strafing bullets at innocent bystanders, forcing our heroes into action. There seems to be some interference in the recording. Maybe remnants of the storm? Robin and I leapt into action, but he wasn't too happy about taking orders from me. Strange wanted to get nuts, so I got nuts. I leaped into the jet and aimed it at an abandoned TV station. Unfortunately, I miscalculated the leap from the plane to a flagpole. But Robin catches him on the swing, and he tells his mentors, Earth-1 Duplicate, that they should work as equals. A giant top bears down on them. It's one of the spinner's old weapons, put out of commission by a surprise appearance by Batwoman. She is shocked to see a younger Batman in Robin's company, but has little time to ask questions when the Batmobile turns the corner and heads right for them. I was shaken by seeing Kathy alive, but I had little time to deal with it. Kathy! An older model of my Batmobile had taken on a life of its own and hoped to end ours. I was hoping my counterpart had stocked his vehicle as I had mine. So I leaped on the back of the car and retrieved some crates from the trunk. 
but no bat pod. I then reminded Robin of the car's weak spot. He hesitated, but I assured him there was no other way. Robin begrudgingly makes the car he associates with the best years of his life crash with a well-thrown batarang. As Robin mourned the loss of his childhood car, I assembled its contents. Three whirly bats. Robin tried to talk Kathy out of joining us, but despite being married with children, she refused. Citing her Batman often tried to dissuade her from crime fighting, just as I did with my Batwoman. Kathy tells of how she knew that Batman had changed toward her and ultimately realized he'd gotten married. She hung up her costume, but now laments the years she avoided her now-lost friend. She vows to lend her hammers of justice to help us save the city for his sake and her family's. As Batman works on his Mechano set, Batwoman agrees to work with the heroes to stop Hugo Strange in memory of the man she loved. Robin discovers a crucial clue, a plate on the car where he etched his initials. This is the actual Batmobile. Ergo, Hugo Strange is getting all his stuff from the Batcave itself. The heroes whirly bat their way there, doubting their little team's unity. Their first test occurs almost immediately, as the robotic T-Rex that's the centerpiece of this Batcave's collection, too, attacks. I tell Robin to grab Penguin's flamethrower umbrella while Batwoman and I work a stalactite loose. Robin maneuvers the robot under us, and we drop the stalactite right on his steel skull, reminding it that we are vengeance. But Strange isn't through with us, striking a moral blow, but using one of my doubles Batman robots to unnerve Robin and Batwoman. I tried to plead with them to realize this isn't their friend, but the robot hits me with a left cross. Robin freezes the machine with Mr. Zero's freeze gun and finishes it with a big rock. Well, sorry, I suddenly couldn't help myself. Hugo Strange steps from the shadows, cosmic rod in his hand. His body is battered and misshapen. He tells us of how he laid immobilized from his fall for years, his brilliant mind trapped in an invalid body. He eventually coerced a surgeon into using his pituitary enzyme to revive his body, but the experiment left him in his deformed state. He states he wanted to destroy Gotham, but I know better. I know he wanted to die, and he wanted us to do it for him. I struggle with him, but Strange finally admits I'm right. With the power of the cosmic rod, he turns himself into dust. The following morning, Robin, Batwoman, Starman, and I return to the cemetery where I appeared on Earth 2. Kathy thanks me for making her remember the good times, but I assure her she did the same for me. Robin apologizes for being short with me, and hopes that next time we meet, we can start fresh. Starman uses his cosmic rod to send me home, but I can't help but wonder, and I'm sure my friends are doing the same, just what brought me to that cemetery on that particular night to begin with. I'm not sure any of us really want to know. And there hangs the tale. Nobody was expecting this many Batmans. Uh, <laughs> To crash the show, but I'm glad they did. Reality storms. That's right. What can I say? You know, it's all shifting around us. We don't even need to ask, you know, what's your general feeling about this issue? It's one of your favorites right. ever. And uh, it is a very strong, action-packed, looks great. So let's just get into it from, from the top, which is to say, the cover. I, I love this cover. I mean, how can you not buy this? I mean, I remember, I think I bought this off the rack at Begley's, which wasn't my usual. It was like my secondary comic buying place. Begley's was a drugstore that Cindy's mom actually worked at, oddly enough. Well, my future mother-in-law was... Like, probably in the store when I bought this comic. Uh, so that's kind of weird. But, you know, the cover says, what's going on here? Uh, indeed, you know, you've got a zip-a-toned Hugo Strange. It almost looks like a photograph. His head floating there. You know, floating heads. That's always on the Batman family reunion. They love those floating heads. So you got floating heads. You add in the 50s Batmobile bearing down on them. 
and you can't look away. I mean, the, the only thing that I don't really love about this cover is the Robin logo, because I really wish they'd use an established Robin logo like the Star Spangled Comics logo, you know, that was the, the bat with Robin inside it, the bat shape, and they could have put mm-hmm. the X over, you know, added the X into that logo. Uh, that's the, uh, This looks like this is probably something Jim Aparo did on the fly, because we know he was good at lettering, too. So, And Batwoman's cape's miscolored blue, but, you know, other than that, I love it. What do you think about it? Yeah, I agree. I am the Dezipatone face pops out and is really cool. Like, this is a scene from the comic uh, where the Batmobile has that snowplow <laughs> face. You know, its face ends in a snowplow that could really spice yes. someone. I, I guess my complaint in this one, if I need to have one, is that the building in the back, just behind Hugo Strange, feels a little thin like it's a cardboard cutout yeah, or something. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it looks a yeah. little... It look, I never even noticed that before. There should be at least some dimension... Like the basically the stack of the building, the, the the secondary stack doesn't go back into you know vanishing point at all, you know. So <laughs> no, and th- this is the thing about Jim Aparo's art in the '80s because we're very close to the end of Brave and the Bold, and so we're close to his work on Outsiders, um, which everyone knows is my favorite comic. <laughs> and uh, no, I always thought in Outsiders itself, one of the things I kind of mocked. You know, disrespectfully, really, because I know Aparo's eyesight was starting to go at this point as well. But but I always felt like he was a little weak on perspectives, which is exactly the point that you bring here with the vanishing point of the buildings or whatnot. So, you know, you, you could have someone was on, on the sidewalk and then across the street, the people were tiny, tiny, like as if that <laughs> that street was miles wide. Yeah. So this is the Aparo of that era. And yet, aside from this little nitpick... I thought the issue looked really mm-hmm. boss. The action was dynamic. Great inking. He's doing his yeah. own inking. Powerful action. He was always good at powerful action. You know, when Jim Aparo, when his Batman punches someone, it feels like their head yeah, exploded. It does, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but but in this, a very fluid, very acrobatic, which you need for a mm-hmm. Robin story of any Earth. So I felt like uh, like this was prime Jim Aparo. So whenever he started to maybe lose it or cut corners to hit deadlines, or I don't know, it was later than this, because this looks really good. Yeah, it, it does. And I mean, his, like I said, his his Earth 2 Robin just looks, uh, I mean, you know, and, and that's no offense to, but that, that includes in this later era, artists like George Perez and Jerry Ordway. I, I prefer Jim Aparo's take on the character. And uh, Aparo didn't get to draw Robin as much as you would think for a cla- at least Dick Grayson is Robin for a classic Batman artist because he was you know came up during the era where Dick was off at college and not often in Batman stories and he definitely wasn't in Raven the Bold very often but he he always drew a really good Earth One Dick Grayson and he was one of those artists who kind of aged Dick up and made him actually look like he was you know a grown man <laughs> that was a college age you know student so he you know he draws a powerful Robin, of course, we know as Batman's above reproach, but yeah, it, this is, I, I'm one of those guys too that felt like, I really didn't like in the, the late 80s, early 90s when when DC decided, oh, let's put Bill Sienkiewicz over Jim Apparel. I hated that combination. That's like, to me, that was like putting this peanut butter, I'm getting kind of tired of it. Let's mix it with motor oil. You know, I mean, it's, it's it just doesn't work. So I, I love seeing Apparel ink himself here and uh, you know, unfettered. Yeah, I mean, I know his, his artwork's not, it's not going to be at its prime in a few years, but I think you're right. We're still, this is still very, very, very good Jim Apparel. You know, once he gets inkers, 
who finished a job and don't really match his. I think Apero has a, a certain smoothness mm-hmm. to the figures. There's a grace to the figures. If you put anyone who's a little scratchy, like a Dennis Cohen or a, and I'm not saying those inkers actually inked him, but you know that those kinds of of art, like Sinkevich, like uh, who am I thinking of? Um, Carl Jansen. Yeah. You know, it's not gonna yeah. look right. You know, or even someone like uh, Mike. Yeah, DiCarlo, Mike DiCarlo. DiCarlo yeah, no, that, that's Mike DiCarlo is like a little very thin line, and there's. I don't know. You're you're taking something away from what makes a paro a paro. I think. Yeah, yeah. I've always said this, but and I, I beat this drum to death. But if if you if you want to see probably Jim Apparel's last great Batman art, that's all him. Check out Legends of the Dark Knight Annual Number One. That's a it's a jam comic. Denny O'Neill writes the story, but a bunch of artists interpret different chapters, and Jim Apparel draws like the framing sequence. And I, this is late apparel, but man, it, 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 it honestly looks like it could have came from a Brave and the Bold from this era. I don't know if he just had a really good week that he was working on that, where his eyesight was kind of a little bit better than, than it had been, you know, a while, but it, it really is sharp and he gets to ink himself. And I think he letters it too. It's, it's like the last great work of Jim Apparel. I, it's kind of obscure, but you got, go check that comic out. <laughs> we will i mean it's always unusual when we say okay it's a team-up book and it's gonna be batman and robin aren't they already a combo or you know is that really a team-up of course in this case because of the alternate earth angle it is and we get bonus heroes because we also get earth 2 starman and earth 2 batwoman and this this is probably another reason I, i took notice of starman because this being my favorite comic of all time i was more you know i was more open to Oh, they're doing something with Starman, you know, when they James Robinson and Tony Harris launched their Jack Knight title. I'm like, oh, I have a fondness for Starman over some of the other JSAers because he's in this very story, you know, <laughs> because him and Robin are the Christmas Crusaders in this story with their <laughs> red and green costumes. <laughs> Thank God for the yellow. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> breaking it up. But they do look like they could be a pair, you know, it's like suddenly Robin maybe... Is Starman's sidekick. He's using this, he, you know, has the same right. colors. <laughs> yeah. And then Hugo Strange shows up. So, of course, Hugo Strange was a character from the Golden Age. So he can be on Earth 2, even though he had like a, a better career on <laughs> Earth 1, I, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. He first appeared in Detective number 36. That's February 1940. It's very close to Robin's own first appearance. And, um, and so that makes him a candidate to be here. The story where he used concentrated lightning. Uh, to create a dense fog so his goons could rob banks unseen is that in that issue. So this is what they're referring to here. So Brennert has gone back and taken Hugo Strange's first story. Robin was not in that story. So I, I don't know. He, he's read the case files. This issue also references events for Batman number one and Detective number 46, like Strange's apparent death. That, that means the whole career of this Hugo Strange has been addressed. But then he, he'd become a, a bigger deal later on in DC continuity. Right. I mean, just recently in on Earth-1, uh, he got a huge boost because he appeared in the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers, Terry Austin run in Detective, and Jerry Conway would actually bring him back later in 1982, despite the fact that he's supposed to be dead and a ghost now. So <laughs> <laughs> There's a note on page 5 that says, these events obviously take place before those depicted in World's Finest Comics number 271. Right. <laughs> Uh, so, in other words, maybe they caught like, uh, oh, 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 no, somebody did a story <laughs> not too long ago, and and we kind of we forgot right. about it, you know, right. when writing this one. I wouldn't um, doubt that that you know that was that story in in World's Finest two seventy one is written by Roy Thomas, and Roy was basically at one point told, "You're the Earth two editor," 
And I, I think I've, I've read that mm. sometimes Roy got a little, got his feathers rankled a little bit when, uh, other people did Earth 2 stories without, like, basically running it by him first. Uh, so he might have, like, been in the office and noticed or, you know, he heard that they've done this. Like, hey, you got to put a footnote because I just had those characters meet again in, in World's Finest 271 just a few months ago, you know. So it doesn't surprise me if that wasn't generated via Roy Thomas one way or another. So, <laughs> I mean, it's not uh, necessarily Brenner's fault because, it, it, I mean, that story appeared four right. months earlier. You know, within the production time of this issue. Yeah, and Alan Brenner's like writing, you know, TV scripts and novels. He's, you know, he, he just dabbles in comics. So, you know, he can't be asked to keep up with what's going on in the DC offices. So. This being an Earth 1, Earth 2 story, you know, uh, you need a device to bring Batman over to Earth 2. And the device predates Crisis, but but it's, uh, it's you know, there's a lightning storm and somehow realities merge. Yes. Uh, so, uh, had this been a, a concept in other Earth One Earth Two stories before this? You know, not that I know of. It it, it does remind me, and I'm sure it, it. I know it had to perk your Vulcan ears. It reminds me of uh, the Ion Storm that causes the switch in the classic Star Trek episode Mirror Mirror. You know, I mean, a powerful storm that can affect the transporter and and deposit Kirk and crew on the the Mirror Universe with the you know with the Spock with the beard. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's often this concept. Obviously, Crisis on Infinite Earths will do it with red skies. I mean, I don't know. Here, there's no reddish tinge, right? There's just this, like, Mm -hmm. night blue skies. Yeah, it doesn't look like a crisis sky or anything. But at the same time, like, I'm... Right now, I'm just totally uh, tangent, but uh, I'm I'm running a Torg Eternity uh, role-playing campaign. Okay. And in Torg, there are reality storms that bring other universes to ours and the sort of invaders from other cosms. And just always a precursor is a reality storm with lightning and a sort of reddish tinge to the, the whole the clouds and whatnot. The, the game is old. This is like a new version of it. But it always had that, which may have been inspired by Crisis because it seems like Crisis did it first. But then we look at this and they're also using that same device. So it happens a lot. Yeah, and, uh, and, it, and it makes me think that, you know, you're talking about maybe not a storm, but like a natural disaster, an event of powerful proportions that shakes the the atmosphere. Uh, on the uh, Super France cartoon, the uh, Superman's trying to stop Mount Vesuvius from erupting. Meanwhile, in an evil universe, the evil Superman is trying to make it erupt. And when it erupts, it switches them on the, you know, switches their place on the, the two worlds. So... <laughs> It's always some kind of natural catastrophe that that, that switches these characters over, which I think is, uh, is kind of a cool uh, thread in all these different types of stories. Yeah, the skin of the universe is is thinner than we think, and then something breaks it you know, yes. for a second and moves our heroes. So it doesn't take a long time before Batman, you know, meets up with Robin, obviously, and then they're attacked by the Panther Jet. Has this appeared before? Yes. Did, did pa- Catwoman have a panther jet? Catwoman did indeed have a panther jet uh, from Detective Comics number 211, September 1954. The Jungle Cat Queen, written by Edmund Hamilton, Dick Sprang, and Charles Paris, which is reprinted in the greatest Batman stories ever told, the original volume from 1988-89. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I wasn't aware of it. So, <laughs> Roy Thomas is not the only person who can do this. Right. Uh, reference the past and have a, a, a clear recollection of past Batman stories, etc. The Panther Jet makes an appearance. It's going to be one of many 
let's call them trophies, that Hugo Strange is using against Batman and Robin. It's, it's almost like, just thinking of it now, you, you know, we have a Robin who is haunted by his mentor's death, and it looms large in the story. But then when Hugo Strange uses all of the Batcave's trophies against them, it, it really is the past attacking Robin. Yes. Thematically, this works quite well as well. Yeah, it's it adds a wonderful layer to it that, you know, as as a kid, I, I didn't – that's the thing when I first read this. Obviously, I didn't pick up on that because I was like, you know, seven, six or seven or something when this came out. But, you know, later on, I'm it's a nice poetic touch that, you know, Robin, who is – you know, obviously, as he deals with meeting this Batman who, you know – he resents, you know, uh, because he's not his Batman and how dare he, you know, show up on his world, you know, looking like, you know, being Bruce Wayne, but not being his Batman, you know. So, yeah, it, it's a, it's another great layer that Brennard adds in. And then he brings in Batwoman. Yes. And she defeats the Spinners. This is another character I really didn't know anything about. <laughs> the Spinners giant top. I mean, a giant top. Very Batman, late 40s, 50s. Yeah. It's prank. So he's really mining what might be the Golden Age Batman's uh, entire history, right? Anything before the Yellow Oval can almost be considered Earth 2 Batman? Yeah, you know, that's the weird thing. I mean, the Spinner is, he's an obscure villain, but he, his, his only appearance was in Batman 129 from February 1960. Now that's pretty light. For, for Earth yeah. 2, because we're obviously on Earth 1 at this point most of the time, because the Justice League is already formed. So, once the Justice League is formed, that is for sure the Earth 1 Batman in those stories. There's no way that's not the Earth 1 Batman, you know. And so, even without the Oval. Even without the Oval. Who's who in other text erroneously stated Batman's first, Earth 1 Batman's first appearance was uh, Detective 327, where he first got the yellow oval. But that can't be right, because he was already in the Justice League, you know. So uh, there's this weird, there's this weird nebulous, where did, you know, where did the stories, Earth 1 stories begin? Where did they, Earth 2 stories end? And if you go to Mike's Amazing World, he does probably about the, you know, who we owe a lot of gratitude (laughs) to as podcasters. But if you go there, he's got some nice little articles about how he looks at, where the cutoffs are and it's it's there, there's no distinct cutoff there's literally stories that probably take place on both worlds and I, you know before this story i would think most writers and fans probably considered batwoman to be a strictly earth one character but here alan brenner brings her in as an earth two character because it's it's fascinating that you know i've got a dead batman's dead on earth two but now Batwoman's dead on Earth-1. What a wonderful opportunity to have these characters meet face-to-face and deal with the loss of each other on parallel worlds, you know? So, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. yeah There's there been a rough year for Batman because he mentions that Hugo Strange died within yeah. that year, that Batwoman died during that year. It's like, yeah, everybody's dying in the in the supporting yeah. cast. And, and I think this is the first time I ever... I had the issue where Batwoman, where Kathy Kane dies, but as a kid, I guess I didn't pick up on it. They, they didn't really show a flashback to her in costume. I think we just see her reaching for her Batwoman costume when Batman finds her dead in her circus tent. That was in Detective 485 and 79. And I didn't know who Batwoman was when I picked up this comic. I had never had encountered a reprint with her 
in it at this point. So this is my this is my introduction to Batwoman. So. <laughs> I mean, well, she fares better than in most of the original <laughs> yeah, she does. stories, yeah. where she's trying to show up Batman and, and stuff like that. She's Batman in terms of riches and resources, but then also a little, you know, 50s female written, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> These are very sexist portrayals. And then I, I feel like, yeah, she does belong to the Golden Age in that sense. You know, she does belong to an earlier era of Batman, whereas for us, Earth-1... Batgirl is the the female Batman. Right, right. There's definitely more of like DC took the approach of the new look Batman forward is the Earth One Batman, even though that's not exactly true. So, <laughs> and and I like Kathy Kane in this. You know, she's got kids at home, but she's putting on the costume for the for maybe the last time, yes. so the last hurrah or something. And then so they they become a little team to uh, to defeat Hugo Strange. So I, I like her appearance here. Yeah, I like how Jim Apparel just slightly in close-ups he shows that she's a little bit older. I mean, she's still, you know, she's still very fit obviously, but she's got just a little bit of age in her face, just a little more age lines, just a little more drooping, just a little more drooping skin around her chin and things like that, but not not enough that you'd be like, "Oh, for Pete's sake, old lady, put that costume away. You're too old to do this," you know? So, I mean, she still looks like she's very capable. But he also does show the age because, it, you know, and he needs to because she's lamenting, you know, I'm a married woman, but this young Batman needs to go because I don't want to fall in love with him all over again. Yeah, she's also dealing with the past coming home to roost, you know, old memories, nostalgia, confronting her grief is, is brought to the fore in that way. But also a grief for a life that she once had, no longer has, wishes she still had yeah. maybe, even though... Having a family, et cetera, is, is certainly fulfilling as well. But, you know, so she's she's, she's just reminded of the path not yeah. taken. Yeah, and I, I am so – it never occurred to me before, but I am so surprised that Roy Thomas never did anything with Kathy's kids in Infinity Incorporated. So <laughs> – I mean, maybe because they all needed to be related to the JSA and Batwoman never was. Yeah, maybe. But they're still Bat Legacy characters, you know, so. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe maybe it wasn't clear to him that Batwoman was an Earth 2 yeah, character. Yeah, he might have considered this. It, it wasn't under my watch, so it's not in Earth 2 canon or something. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. can imagine Roy Thomas shaking his fist at the air. Brunert! <laughs> you know. <laughs> Every time one of these stories comes out. Then the Batmobile attacks. So now we know. Up to this point, it's like, okay, Hugo Strange is using old other villains' yeah. gimmicks. But the Batmobile itself, that's, that should be sacred. Or at least that's what Robin seems to think. Yeah, don't don't mess with the Batmobile. And I, and I love Dick Sprang's Batmobile of 1950. I mean, there's a story, the Batmobile of 1950, where it's introduced because the previous Batmobile is destroyed and Batman and Robin build the, the classic bubble-domed Batmobile that we see here. And, and nobody drew it better than Dick Sprang. When Dick Sprang drew it, it looked, it was huge, but it was sleek, and and the bubble was integrated into the way the fin. Uh, later artists, and this is not thrown off on them, but people like Sheldon Moldoff really drew it. I mean, it, not to be mean, but it looks like the Homer Mobile from The Simpsons. I mean, it, it, it's this, it's this, oh, yeah. it's this brick with a bubble on top and then a fin sticking out the back. It's not integrated. It's not sleek. It, but <laughs> Apparel does a great job with it here. It looks closer to the way Dick Sprang drew it, and uh, it looks great. And I, it's absolutely one of my favorite, one of my favorite comic book Batmobiles. That in the 1980s Batmobile that was the basis of the Superpowers Batmobile are my two favorite comic book Batmobiles. 
and I've got like, you know, model kits and things of it. So in, in little die cast versions and I absolutely love it. And, and one of the reasons I had already encountered that Batmobile many times. I had a, a world's finest comic that reprinted early Superman Batman team ups. And that was the Batmobile they were driving in that. Uh, so I had a love for this car. So when it showed back up in a modern comic, I'm like, oh, cool. It's the cool old Batmobile. <laughs> And it seems to be carrying three whole whirly bats, which, <laughs> Batman, there is such a thing as being overprepared. <laughs> Not for Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Normally you work alone or with one partner. Why are there three whirly bats? Three big you know, valises full, <laughs> full of parts, and then you have to put it up together. Ikea whirly bats, you know. <laughs> Listeners write in, what is the whirly bats Ikea name? Is it Sven? You know, is it Olaf? What is it? Uh, I don't know why I'm naming Frozen characters. But, it, you know, what's its name? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that wasn't enough of a clue that this was the real Batmobile. Would Hugo Strange send a remote-controlled Batmobile replica, and it would have whirly bats inside? <laughs> <laughs> but then Robin finds the, the you know, his kind of souvenir plate uh, where he vandalized, <laughs> you know, a plate by putting his initials on there. Yeah, so, and he puts DG, which, like, I mean, he says, I, I didn't think anybody would ever see it, which I get because it's in the Batcave. But still, I don't know if that's the best practice to put your secret identity's initials inside the Batmobile dick. I don't, I don't you know. What year is it? Uh, because the issue comes out in 82, so we can we can expect that the Earth-1 Batman is from 1982. Mm-hmm. But Robin signed this plate in 1955, yeah. so almost 30 years earlier. But is he 30 years? He's not 30 years older. Uh, you know, it's never clear to me, like, is Earth-2 really in phase with Earth-1, at least in this story? Uh, you know, I, I generally think it is, but then, the, but you got to remember... They later reveal that Robin was there when they absorbed the chronal energy from Ian Carcool. So he can be in his 50s and still, you know, look. Look Yeah, yeah, and still look 30. He can still look Batman's age. So now in a few years, Jerry Ordway and George Perez will start drawing him older with gray in his temples and he looks a little more haggard. But here he looks like prime 30 to 32 year old earth one dc hero you know so <laughs> but yeah it, it is often kind of odd to think and, and, and i mean if you think about those stories like if dick ages in real time of course he's got the because roy <laughs> changes uh, reveals that in a few years he's got that chrono energy they absorb but robin appears you know in, in the stories as published he appears like 13 at best at his oldest in those stories Maybe 15, something like that. But, I mean, he have to, some of the later stories would have had to been in college up in his 20s, at least. Uh, you know, in the later Golden Age, early Silver Age, if we're creeping into the 50s, pretty good. So, yeah, it, it, it gets a little uh, time slidey there. And, you know, DC did some different things. I mean, Steve Englehart, you know, posited that the stories happened when they happened, but the characters just didn't age like people on earth prime on on earth one you know so it's weird it's it's hard to reconcile it's best just not to think about it too much (laughs) (laughs) exactly it's uh hyper time exactly yeah (laughs) anyway this is like the final not the final clue but a confirmation that now they make the leap that hugo strange is working out of the Batcave, which is going to give us an environment that we know well for the final confrontation And at this point, I feel like Batman, this is this is my pet peeve with Batman in the early 80s, as came in full bloom in Outsiders, where he does not particularly trust his partners. Yeah. 
And I, I don't like it. So in, in this case, it's like he says, we got to start working together, Robin. You know, because Robin's kind of his own man at this point, which is also true of Earth One Robin, mm-hmm. to be sure. But in this case, you know, when I tell you to jump, you should jump because we're working together. <laughs> but then he keeps, no matter what, Batman wants to be the leader. And I feel like they're not working together. I, no. <laughs> I feel like it's, Batman really just wants to, to call the shots, which is not the same thing as working together. He wants them to work for him. Batman is is saying the right things. He's saying, I want to work as a team. But he is acting like he's bossing around the Earth One, Robin, and Batwoman. I mean, he just, you know, which he yeah. he had a pretty crappy attitude toward Batwoman in, in those stories. If you go back and reread them, obviously, even Batgirl early on, That's you true. know, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Basically, is what he's doing. <laughs> the exact words he uses is equal partners. Yeah. So that's, that's really far from from what it is, but it is in character for Batman in this era. I'm not <laughs> I'm not quibbling no. about that. Uh, and, and there is a lot of doubt in the characters at this point. I mean, even though they should be in natural pairings or natural trio, because Batman comes from elsewhere, because they've got all their own issues and a lot of what I call the mind killer. You know, they're thinking about the wrong things, which is not productive that happens for all three really yeah i love the the three panels where they're flying to the bat cave there's a close-up of each one you know we learn what they're thinking dick resents bruce for being himself bruce is worried their issues will give strange the advantage and kathy is like i said she's worried she's going to fall in love with this younger batman that she can never have you know so it, it's it, i love that wonderful those three little panels are just you know just great little snapshots into what the characters are thinking and and, and i miss thought balloons you know so <laughs> This was the era where we still had them. Yes. They were going to be on their way out within the yes. decade. Yeah. Sadly. We're in the Batcave. All that's missing really is that the, the, the giant penny goes rolling or something. Because, <laughs> you know, we've got the dinosaur is in action. We've got, uh, you know, old technology from Mr. Zero's freeze gun. So Mr. Zero being Mr. Freeze yes. from before. Uh, or the Golden yes. Age one, or the 50s one, or whatever. <laughs> However we want to scale this thing, but he's the Earth 2 version of Mr. Freeze. You know, it's fun to see all of these references, especially the dinosaur. Yeah, it, that's that was great. And I, I love the fact that, you know, Strange uses the trophies against them, but then the heroes do too, like you said, because Robin grabs Penguin's flamethrower umbrella, and then Mr. Freeze's... Uh, you know, freeze gun or Mr. Sorry, Mr. Zero's freeze gun. That's cool that they, you know, I, I like it in stories where, you know, they did that even in uh, Justice League in the Starcross finale when uh, they're in the Batcave and, you know, the trophies and things are being used. I like it when, uh, you know, Batman and other characters, when they're in a rare battle in the Batcave, will actually use those items it's a nice it's a nice little well batman's got an inventory of an arsenal that goes beyond just his bat themed things you know he's got all these trophies from different cases and stuff that he can actually use if he wants to i it, i'm surprised they've never and maybe they have used had a story where batman like rides the robot dinosaur into gotham and takes out some <laughs> takes out an army of mm. criminals or something <laughs> I don't know if it exists, but it really should. Someone should get on that. <laughs> get on it. If you could do Jurassic League of America or whatever it is, and you can have Batman riding a robot dinosaur, right? So, <laughs> I've read the story where the dinosaur becomes yes. a trophy. We've seen it in action in the wild, in a forest. Uh, but then seeing it, Batman weaponizing it, that would be... Because, obviously, I mean, Batman's been dead for a while here, and all of his enemies' weapons are all charged up. 
<laughs> they're ready yeah. to go. So it's part of the super preparedness, right. yeah. probably. <laughs> and then even the, like the Batman robot, I always associate the doppelganger robots with Superman, yes. of course. Golden Age Batman robot present. <laughs> well, it, nothing says Superman didn't give Batman a uh, robot. You know, I mean, uh, the Superman and Batman of Earth 2 were also very chummy, you know, uh, established later on. And, and, and Roy Thomas even said all those radio adventures happened. So even though they didn't have World's Finest team-ups that they met, they were, you know, very, very chummy. And, and uh, in the Mr. and Mrs. Superman strip and Superman family, Clark and Lois attended Bruce and Selina's wedding. You know, so they were buddies. So, you know, maybe Superman didn't have a fortress, but he had his, uh, his uh, what was it, his uh, secret citadel. I can't remember what they called Super. It was a mountain headquarters he had, you know, on Earth 2. So he he probably had Superman robots there. And so maybe he just, he just made Batman one. <laughs> Unless there are actual Golden Age stories that have a Batman robot, which explains this, which I wouldn't be surprised. Just... I, I think there are. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if Batman, some listeners might know, I, off the top of my head, I don't know if Batman employed them himself, but I you know, I definitely remember seeing covers where a Batman robot was coming at them. So, I mean, of course, there were <laughs> Batmans of all variations, especially toward the late 50s, early 60s, were <laughs> in the in the comics. So, and, and apparently, Brennard's including that era here, obviously, because that's the era of Batwoman. It's probably in there. Maybe it was a trophy, uh, like an enemy yeah. trophy, like the other ones. Not something that he would use to uh, cover his secret identity or anything. <laughs> that never happened. And then the final pages are the shocker, the reveal. Professor Strange is wizened, and he's been an invalid for 20 years. They're using the plot that they mentioned earlier, where, you know, manipulating his glands. So he kind of tried that thing to to survive having fallen off a cliff. You know, it had a bad effect. And then at the end, a rare... I mean, for this era, a rare suicide. Yeah. I mean, suicide by superhero. I mean, that's what he was after. He was wanting to die in a hail of superhero bullets, more or less, you know, but he, you know, Batman wasn't obliged, so he ends up taking himself out. So, yeah, very heady stuff for a kid's comic. What's, you know, supposed to be basically a kid's comic on a newsstand at the time. <laughs> I like the top of page 18, where Batman and Strange are struggling, almost a callback to when they, the original Batman was struggling with Hugo Strange atop mm-hmm. a cliff, and then he fell off, you know? So we're seeing, like, the sort of the same silhouettes, in a way, except we're inside the Batcave on top of a ledge, which creates something similar, but that this time, Batman... I mean, you could interpret it to say that Batman manipulated him into committing suicide, at least goads him into it, because at first, Strange is going, you can't kill us, you brought us here, hoping we, you know, he he divines the psychology here, hoping we could do the job you didn't have the guts for, admit it. No, no, I don't, I don't, I do, I do, and then just like echoey, the dust screaming, I do, into the ether, so when he admits that he wanted suicide by superhero, then he does it himself. You know, by turning the cosmic rod's power upon himself. Yeah, Thanos snaps him. <laughs> he himself, Thanos yeah. snaps himself. He snaps yeah. himself. It's kind of interesting because, you know, uh, Hugo Strange had that dust of death at one point, too, and then now he's turned to dust. Mm. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of intricate little elements like this that Brennard brings to it. Continuity references, but using them as illusions so it's a little more literary even though the canon that it's referring to is other comics you know 
And I mean, the, the cosmic rod can do anything. So I suppose. This <laughs> yeah, is I fine. mean, the cosmic rod in this era. I mean, I guess it's partially because Starman didn't really appear that often, and when he did, it's like it, it was basically like Green Lantern's power ring. It was maybe even more powerful than Alan Scott's power ring. You know, I, I'm sure if somebody threw a stick at it, it wouldn't hurt it. You know, it would still be. You know, it would still work. So it, it, it could basically do whatever they needed it to. I mean, it could. They were convinced it was creating constructs of Batman's trophies, but then they realize, oh, no, wait, it's not. It's maybe manipulating them, but they're real. But it's like, they thought it could do that. You know, so it's like they, the power of it, and it can bridge the gap between Earth 1 and Earth 2 with just a, a flick of Ted's wrist, apparently. You know, he's like Glinda, you know, with the mag- with the wand and the ruby slippers, I guess. Uh, it's kind of amazing how powerful this thing was. And of course, when they get into, they actually, you know, there's a Starman title to explore this technology, you know, James Robinson obviously tones this down. <laughs> you know, it's brings it back to uh, gravity rod. Yeah, levels. yeah, it's 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 more powerful than his original gravity rod, but it's not magic Deus Ex Machina in a rod form, basically. <laughs> so in the final page, he uses it to send Batman back across the veil, and here here the skies are red. I mean, it's a, it's a sunrise. Right. Okay. <laughs> but the skies are red, I noticed. And then this is an interesting bit, because when I read it, I did not clue in. Like, to me, when they wonder, how did this happen? What brought Batman over? What what lured Batman to the cemetery in the first place that then became the Earth 2 cemetery, yeah. you know? And to me, it was like, okay, well, I guess that was just an unresolved plot hole or whatever. But your eyesight was better okay. than mine. <laughs> I've always assumed it was the Earth 2 Batman's spirit that manipulated all this into being because his Gotham City needed a Batman and he wasn't there, so he was going to make it happen. It's that final panel that reveals it because when they say, I'm not sure I know what what happened, I'm not sure I want to know, the last shot, even though we hear the dialogue from Robin, is the cemetery, it's Bruce Wayne's, Earth 2 Bruce Wayne's tombstone, and it casts a Batman shadow. So it's like, okay, so that's Brenner telling us that's what happened. Yes, it is a ghost. It was a ghost story all along. (laughs) Um, Hugo Strange, the face in the the sky, is a ghost because he's supposedly dead. They meet Batman of Earth-1, and they all feel like they're they're seeing a ghost because it's their dead friend or the duplicate of another Earth of their dead friend. So they're dealing with the ghosts of the past all throughout and then reveal the ghost of Batman – Two or Batman One. I mean, Batman of Earth Two manipulated these events, created a, a a way to you know bring that Batman over to help his ward defeat Hugo yes. Strange. So interesting ghost story all along, you know, from different perspectives. Yes, it, 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 this whole story is haunted. Everyone's <laughs> it's haunted by apparently by a literal ghost. Of course, he's he's a good ghost. He's working to help his friends and save his city. But you know they're all haunted by the past in one way or the other. I mean, even Batman's haunted by seeing Kathy, ghosts of the past, in that regard. So yeah, it's it. You know that Alan Brenner, he's he's a hell of a guy. You know, it's just. <laughs> He's a hell of a writer. And now, you know, I can't see the shadow behind the tombstone, you know, the way that you can't just, you, you can just hear the dun, 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 you know, like that animated series, you know, uh, many episodes ended that way. And I mean, there were even some where, you know, Bruce Wayne would, I think he was at his parents' grave and he walks away and he casts a shadow of Batman. I just hear that when I look at this panel now. So <laughs> who fared better? We have got a bunch of questions to answer about this issue. <laughs> and uh, the first one is, 
how well this fits each of the character's stories or atmospheres. Is this a Batman story or is it more of a Robin story? Batman has the lion's share of the action. It takes place on Earth too, but Robin shares the page with Starman and Batwoman from his Earth as well. So can he still pull it off? Is it still a Robin story to you? I think Robin was changed more by this encounter than Batman. I mean, Batman was spooked, but I think Dick got to put some of his feelings about the loss of, of his Bruce Wayne in order. He resented Earth-1 Batman, but part of it may be that he was secretly angry at his father for leaving him once more, you know, hence the lashing out. So, I mean, you that that's just the subtext that I read into it. That you can read into it, but Either way, by the end, he's dealt with some of the demons that Bruce's death had conjured for him. And and then he has to wonder, you know, maybe he's wondering, like we are, did his Bruce arrange the whole thing? So I, I do feel like even though this is, it's more from our Batman's perspective, I think you could say this is his story, mostly too, because the adult Earth 2 Robin never got much of a solo spotlight chance at all. It, he never did. He was always with the Huntress or with the JSA or something. So I, I like to think this is more his story. <laughs> Okay, I'm convinced. Now, a question we only ask in the Brave and the Bold segment. Each of these segments has its own little quirks. Uh, In this case, do they know Batman's secret identity? Uh, Chris, can you explain what this is going to be about? Okay, the reason we went with this goofy angle is uh, for the bulk of Brave and the Bold's run, uh, Zany Bob Haney played fast and loose with character relationships and continuity, including the relationship to their home planet, as in which Earth they were from, but he infamously showed that Rex Metamorpho Mason knew Bruce Wayne was Batman in one of those tales drawn by Jim Aparo. Years later, in Batman and the Outsiders, also drawn by Jim Aparo, writer-co-creator Mike W. Barr revealed that Metamorpho did not know Batman's secret identity, which started a raging dumpster fire in the letter columns worthy of some modern internet trolling. I mean, it was like an early forum chat room type debacle. Barr cited many of the Raven the Bold tales shouldn't be considered Earth-1 canon, further fostering the fan notion of an Earth-B for Bob Haney, editor Murray Boltonoff, and of course, the Brave and the Bold. So that's that's going to be our criteria for that going forward. But of course, in this story, Robin knows Batman's identity. He even knows and has met this Batman before. He knows of a Batman from another parallel world. So obviously Robin knows who Batman is. <laughs> oh, yes. In this case, it's not much of a of a right. stretch. But we are talking about a side continuity where at some point, Black Canary was <laughs> Bruce Wayne's secretary. So... <laughs> Yeah. Plastic Man was obsessed with this one woman and was a uh, you know was uh, living in the streets at one point and yeah. Bob Haney puts the pieces where he needs them to make the stories right. happen. This is not a Bob Haney story, so maybe it's a little more <laughs> straightforward in terms of who knows or does not know Batman's identity and what their role is in the right. story. You know, but that's not always going to be the case. Okay, cool moves. Uh, what is Batman's coolest moves? I would say that his coolest move is knowing what Strange really wanted. And I mean, unless you, <laughs> unless you follow your, the suggestion that you brought up that he kind of manipulated him to, <laughs> into, uh, you know, saying that's what he wanted. But if he really, that's what Strange was really after. I mean, that's, that's Batman's keen detective mind, his, his criminal psychoanalysis uh, working overtime, you know, so I, I think that's his coolest move. For me, it's, I'm going to go for an action bit. It's spiking the dinosaur. Um, you're using, you know, the whole team working together to get that stalactite into the 
dinosaur's computer brain. But there are a lot of choices. I mean, there's a lot of great action bits, and Batman usually takes part. Uh, what about Robins? I, I think the the moment. I mean, it's it's given it's given quite a, a dramatic uh, presentation when he takes out his beloved Batmobile on page eleven, despite himself. But then, I mean, he does save Batman on page eight when he doesn't make that flagpole. So it's it's one of the two. It's hard to say. <laughs> For me, what's cool is like page five, where he doesn't know it's Batman. He sees someone there at the door, and he. Uh, kicks into that figure before realizing what he's done, it looks like it really hurt yeah. Batman. Yeah, you know, there's like these lightning bolts coming out of his of his ribs. So you think, well, when Robin can hurt Batman, uh, get the jump on him and hurt him this badly, I think that's yeah. pretty cool. That, yeah. That's the boy has become a man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, Batman's holding his side like, ow, you know. <laughs> Oh, jeez. Ah. And then there's the flip side, the dumb or weird moves. Batman, what's his dumbest or weirdest move? I think it's jumping out of the Panther jet without a bat rope in his hand. I mean, <laughs> you know. He reaches for that flagpole. And, oh, they didn't no. have grapple guns back then. So, you know, you had to have a, a batarang with a bat rope attached to it. But, you know, usually it was it was a sure thing to, to make it every time. He didn't even try. So Good thing for those flagpoles. Good thing America is so patriotic. Yeah, that's um, right. I don't know if I've ever seen that many flagpoles around town. No, I mean, the, the 60s <laughs> Spider-Man real. cartoon, he'd been screwed completely if there weren't flagpoles for him to swing around. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I'm going to call it a weird move, which is to ask, once again, how many whirly bats <laughs> do you stock? It's a big car, Siskoid. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's a big car. <laughs> What else has he got in there? He's got to have the scuba gear. He's got, I'm sure he's got to have, you know, like all the, the trimmings. But then those three suitcases come out and each one has a whirly bat, which is perfect for the three heroes. I'm calling it weird. <laughs> it is kind of weird. Reality storm. It's a reality storm. You know, Robin, Robin's dumbest or weirdest move. Uh, you know, he was understandably taken aback by the Earth 2 Batman robot, but it, it's still kind of a rookie mistake. I mean, you know, it, it, at this point, you know, he shouldn't. They're in the Batcave. They've already been attacked by the dinosaur, and and I think he he probably should have not be taken off guard by it, in my opinion. But for an, an older Robin, who's maybe even in his fifties, yeah. he does do a lot of rookie stuff, I and mean, he still seems maybe he's out of practice. I don't know, but uh, he gets pushed around a lot. His bacon gets saved by others. Batwoman with the top, and you know, as just an example. But I think it's the dumbest part of it is his attitude towards the loss of his Bruce. Yes, he takes care of the Batmobile, but half-heartedly, he needs to be coaxed into it. Batman has to shout at him before he does something. So uh, he lets his emotions take control, which I think would be the rookie move, the the mm-hmm. dumb move. Yeah, I can see that. And then we always talk about the friendly farewell because it's a team-up tradition. So how would this does this one rate this final page? Well, I think everybody's definitely on friendly terms at the end of this. Um, you know, there was there was some moments there where there was some tension, obviously, but the the wound of Bruce's death it's never going to completely heal for Dick, but he has made some peace with it. And some peace with the fact that there is an Earth One Batman uh, as well. Uh, Kathy gets to relive her best years for one night. And Bruce gets, our Bruce, Earth One Bruce, gets to see her once more. And he, you know, wonders what could have been. So it's a, it's a melancholy but friendly farewell, I think. I think everybody gets a little love. You know, Batwoman gets a kiss, so literally. Uh, Robin apologizes for his attitude towards Batman, and he seems to have resolved something in himself. Starman provides the way back, so that's that's simple. They didn't have to call Dr. Yeah. Fate after all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a win for Batman. He gets to see an old love. Yeah, at the end, it's bittersweet. 
they do, there's still a bit of a downer once Batman is left. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, seeing that the ghost is maybe has manipulated things or helped him. I feel there's something hopeful about that, that the Batman of Earth 2 is still a looming presence, a positive force in his yes, life. Yes, I think so. We'll take a break for a couple of promos, then we'll be back with our special features. Just imagine the mightiest heroes of our time. All of them on one team. Since there are so many of us, we have a chance to do more than just put out fires. We can be proactive. We can do some real good in the world. JLUcast brings you coverage of Justice League Unlimited, the ultimate gathering of DC's heroes and villains, and the culmination of the greatest interpretation of the DC Universe ever. Join Chris and Cindy Franklin as they relive the team-ups, the battles, the conspiracies. I had no idea that the Girl Scouts were responsible for the crop circle phenomenon. Few people do. Few even think to ask the question. The romance and the fun. A head start. You're getting soft in your old age. Don't you have a tall building to go leave? And the adventure continues. Find us wherever fine fire and water podcasts are available. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics. He defends the nexus of alternate Earths at the heart of Slaughter Swamp, Manbird. No longer in the shadows of Howard the Bat, Manbird. Whatever knows fear hurts at the touch of whose beak, the Manbirds. Coming to you in a new number one issue, Manbird, while supplies last. We're back, and if you just came in and you wonder about the Amalgam promo, we're trying something new uh, with this format, which is to amalgamate the current episode's guest star with the next episode's guest star. So can you guess who shows up next month based on mm. this when we're going to do Ryan's segment? We'll have another hint at the end <laughs> so that you know what book to read. For now, start puzzling it out. Our bonus features include the bonus team-up. It's a monthly feature where each of us proposes, in this case, a perfect Robin of Earth 2 team-up. What do you got? I really wish the two Robins had met again after Dick became Nightwing. Earth 1 and Earth 2 Dick Grayson. Can mm. you imagine the conversation they would have had? Would older Dick be insulted or possibly jealous? Back when I was doing sample pages trying to get work in comics, I had a plot to do a few pages of a story like that, but I never got around to it, so... Uh, also, a team-up just between Earth 2 Superman and Robin after Batman's death would have been nice, too. Maybe take over an issue of DC Comics Presents and, and have the Earth 2 Superman and the Earth 2 Robin. That would have been fun. And see how they both dealt mm. with their the loss of their friend-slash-mentor. That would have been a, a nice story. I mean, obviously, they interacted in you know JSA adventures and things, but just to see them two... The, the remnants of the world's finest team, you know, basically at that point. So Yeah, it could have been a nice one-off DC Comics Presents or something, even though it's it's the other mm -hmm. Superman. At Crisis, not interfered with everything. Yes. One of the better, if not the best, zero-hour tie-in that Bess and I covered was that Robin issue where younger Robin meets, you know, current Robin. Yes. Dick Grayson with uh, Tim Drake. And just like seeing two Robins work together, which today is, is frequent. <laughs> there are tons of Robins. You know, at the time, the, the way that, that that was set up, I think you could have done something similar with the Nightwing and older Robin of this story. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I would have uh, matched him with the sidekicks of Earth 2. So make it maybe uh, happen earlier. Kind of a golden age era, world without grown-ups. Just replace Young Justice with Robin, Sandy, Dan the Dynamite. No Hitler, please. Uh, Speedy. 
Pinky the Whiz Kid stuff, uh, the Mary the Girl with a Thousand Gimmicks, as a kind of Earth 2 Teen Titans, which we never we never got that. Infinity Inc. is not quite that. You know, so the JSA gets taken out of commission in the late 40s or whatever, and then all the sidekicks get together for this big team up. That's my idea. I like that. That's a great idea. The, the closest we ever got to that was in All-Star Squadron number 31, which is another one of my favorite right. comics, with the full membership and... Robin and Speedy are arguing about which of their uh, mentors is better hero. Uh, so, <laughs> but that's just the more things change. Yeah, nothing's changing. <laughs> and Dan the Dynamite's like, well, you guys don't even have powers. TNT and I have powers, you know. So, <laughs> but it'd be nice to see them bury the hatchet and get work together. Yeah. <laughs> next up, who's brave and bold next? As we explained at the top of the show, this might be. Uh, an indexing show, but it's going to jump around as inspired by the issue we're looking at now. So every episode, we'll explain the thematic logic between the episode's guest star and the next. Well, Siskoid, I chose this issue, so it's up to you to decide where we go next and tell us how you got there. All right. I've chosen, uh, without reading it first, Brave and the Bold, number 120, Batman and Commandy. Uh, there are several parallels. One is that Commandy, like this Robin, is a kid hero on his own. And uh, the other is that the story requires Batman to find his way to another reality for the team up to happen. Ah. And we'll see if there's other links to be made. I don't know because, uh, like I said, I haven't read it yet. But you can almost expect that I will try to gear my choices towards the weirdest possible team up. <laughs> it seems to be my uh, my usual modus operandi. <laughs> Thanks for teaming up with me, Chris. Tell people what, what else you're working on at the moment. What, what's coming up this month from your side of the Fire and Water Podcast Network? Well, Cindy and I are working on JLUcast. We're, we're going to wrap things up for a while. We're getting close to the end of Season 1 of Justice League Unlimited. We're going to wrap things up for just a few months and uh, put a pause on that because we're going to jump back into the Supermates podcast for our annual House of Franklin Stein series. Uh, mm. So uh, that's, you know, it's it's the ninth annual, good Lord, ninth annual House of Franklin wow. Stein. So it'll it'll be, I'm, I'm already I'm already working on it. But uh, yeah, and then after that, we're back into JLU cast to wrap the season up. Always a great production. So Thank and you. the 10th is coming up yeah. in, next year. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. A reminder that we do have a Patreon. So if you like this content, want more like it, please think about making a monthly or a one-time donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards. Check it out at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. This month, we are proud to team up with our sponsor, Alan W. Wright, The Bold Outlaw. And we do enjoy reading your thoughts, and the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com, but you can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page or find us on Twitter at fwpodcasts. We'll read your comments on this issue when Chris is back with us but next month, I'll be here with our friend Ryan Daly as we begin his coverage of Marvel 2-in-1 with number one. But don't expect anything linear about Ryan's segment either. We'll, we'll just keep that as a surprise for next time. On that, we will see you next time for another amazing superhero team-up, because after all, justice is a team effort. Let's get nuts.